The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Maybe they assumed they'd done their part and the police would take it from there. Maybe they thought she made it home one way or another, that she was not their problem. Maybe when they learned that she was an escort, they cared a little less. Or maybe of all the bad luck Shannon Gilbert had that night, the worst was coming to a community that, for the better part of a century, had wanted nothing more than to be left alone. Robert Kolker, Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club, Episode 25. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Cause I love you. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill, and I am solo again for this episode. Tara will be back soon, I promise. For those of you who are new and giving us a listen, we are a real-life, true-crime book club-turned-podcast. And while we do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize each book we pull off our murder shelf, follow along in the author's footsteps, and, of course, give our analysis and opinions. You can anticipate three episodes for each book. The first two are going through the book, and our third, which we dubbed Second Cast, where we examine topics and threads that we didn't get to cover in the first couple episodes. We hope you're feeling good, doing well, staying safe, and thank you for listening and reading along with us. This is our second episode on Robert Kolker's Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery. And in our previous episode... You met Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, and Shannon Gilbert. All very different women, daughters, sisters, in some cases mothers, with family, friends, dreams, ambitions, talents, and flaws like all of us. What they do have in common is at the heart of the mystery. They were escorts in the sex trade, and they all disappeared from 2007 to 2010 after leaving on call. It was Shannon Gilbert's May 1st, 2010 disappearance that galvanized attention on a gated private community, Oak Beach, where Colcro's book two begins and the mystery deepens. Interlude, Oak Beach, 2010. When many of us think of beach, soft sand and waves rushing at us comes to mind but this is not the Oak Beach of Long Island or the shore where much of this story takes place. Robert Kolker, he writes of marshes, sumac, and seagrass, mosquitoes, and poison ivy along a narrow peninsula. Left uncivilized and untouched by the Vanderbilts and Astors of the 19th century, only 72 homes exist on Oak Beach today. Many are winterized beach bungalows with new McMansions nestled along the single road Ocean Parkway, built back in the 1930s by famous resident Robert Moses, and it runs the length of these barrier islands. 
21st century residents drive miles to get to a gas station or fast food, drugstore, or hospital. The trade-off is what they do have in abundance. Solitude. With a large gate closing off road travel into the community. People can walk around it, of course, but why would they? There's really no reason to travel the distance out to Oak Beach. I mean, unless you're dumping a body. So more on that later. Now, an anomaly, the residents do not own the land that their homes are built on. And when the leases come due, there is some tension until a new agreement is forged with the town. And this is the job of the Oak Island Beach Association. The association also oversees landscaping, renovations, the usual things you'd expect. Like all neighborhoods, progress presses onward, controversies come and go, and the people remember it all. Back in 2004, an ugly feud between the Scalises and another resident, Frank Saclina, began, battling over a permit, a tree, and a sand dune. Survivor, Oak Beach style, ensued as Frank Saclina tried to have the residents vote the Scalises off the island. When three absentee votes were added to the affirmative ballots, the Scalises filed a lawsuit. Now, what is this to do with missing women on Long Island? Well, community attitudes, fractures, fragility, and secrets. The community culture was tainted by all of this nonsense. Grudges developed, and it was into this uncomfortable adults-acting-like-children environment that Joe Brewer moved into his mom's old cape. A hoarder, unmarried, a failure-to-launch candidate, Joe Brewer wasn't exactly living the life although he considered his mom's bungalow his party and man cave, where anything was a go. It was Joe Brewer, Alex Diaz called, when girlfriend Shannon Gilbert failed to return home, because Joe was her client the night she vanished. Where is Shannon? demanded Alex. Brewer flatly told him that she had freaked out, run away, and, and had no idea. Undeterred, Alex did not stop there. He went back to Oak Beach himself twice. Finally, he and Joe Brewer tried filing a police report. Now, I hadn't known that. The two of them both went to file a missing persons report. Only the Suffolk County Police laughed at them, saying, quote, she ran away? She'll probably come back to your house. Check your house. Maybe she's there now. Well, since Alex and Shannon lived in Jersey City, New Jersey, they were advised they'd have to file a missing persons report in Jersey City. So we have jurisdictional wars again interfering in a case. Well, eventually, Alex ran into Oak Beach resident Peter Hackett. Who is Peter Hackett? Medical doctor, association board member. Peter talks a great deal, and he is one of those guys who loves to be at the center of the fray. He's former head of EMS in Sulphur County. He led the response to the crash of TWA Flight 800 off Montauk Shores back in 1996. But it seems that Peter Hackett later claimed that the Coast Guard flew him out to the wreck, lowered him onto the deck of a yacht. He heroically swam through the waters, slick with fuel, to examine a body. Only the Coast Guard denied that anything remotely like this could happen or did happen. 
So this isn't the first time that Peter had wildly embellished a tale about his actions with EMS, and it was a job he'd leave a scant two years later. The advent of heart problems caused his retirement, and this is where our story finds him in 2010 with Alex Diaz. On hearing Alex's story of Shannon, Peter takes notes. He assures Alex that we're going to help you out. I used to work with the police. We're going to call them. We'll have this whole place searched. And searched it was, but Shannon Gilbert was not found. Now, Shannon's mother, Mary Gilbert, had trouble recalling all the details of the brief phone call. You see, Mary didn't realize that Shannon was missing at the time, so she really didn't have any context for the call, which went something like this. A man called her and said his name was Peter Hackett from Oak Beach, Long Island, and he ran a home for wayward girls, and he had seen Shannon the night before, and she was incoherent. So he'd taken her into his rehab home to get some help. And the next day, a driver came and picked her up. You know, had Mary seen her since? Now, later on, Mary, Alex, and Michael Pack, who was Shannon's driver, they would all debate the details. When had the call occurred? Was it before or after Alex had met Peter Hackett? Shannon's sister, Cherie, confirmed Mary's story about the call, so we know that that happened. But Peter Hackett denied calling Mary at all. Only when cell phone records proved that he had called, aha, there came the epiphany. Now he remembered. But he said he only called to offer the family support, and he denied ever seeing Shannon. Was this just a man seeking attention, inserting himself into a mystery, embellishing as he usually did to create drama? to make himself important or heroic, or was this something more sinister? Hmm. Well, back to Mary Gilbert, who soon realized that Shannon was missing. Flyers were made. She and her daughter, Cherie, went to a beach, knocking on doors, but nothing helpful happened. And this transformed Mary into a mother on a mission. She insisted the Suffolk County PD look for Shannon Escort or not, her daughter was a missing person, do your jobs, and Mary would thunder at them using far more colorful language. It wasn't until about three months later that a Suffolk County police officer knocked on the door of Oak Beach resident Gus Coletti, and it was the same cop who had responded to Shannon's 911 call back in May. Ah, yeah, yeah, Shannon had called 911 for help talking for 23 minutes on the night she disappeared. She'd given the dispatcher her location is kind of near Jones Beach, and that kicked her to the New York State Police 911 system. Months later, the dots are finally connected between the 911 call from the upset crying girl and the woman pounding on doors in Oak Beach running screaming for help. The official line of the Suffolk County PD was that New Jersey, where the missing persons report was filed, had dropped the ball. Of the police's poor response to Shannon's 911 call, Mary's sister, Lori Grove, said, quote, If somebody had gotten there within 10 or 15 minutes, my niece most likely would be alive. Why did no one get there? Lori Grove's question would echo in the darkness. 
Now in August, Gus Coletti filled the officer in on what he had witnessed. Shannon screaming, pounding on his door, desperate, running, and what she was wearing. Another neighbor, Barbara Brennan, said that she had seen Shannon too. Now as Coker wrote in our opening paragraph, he was speculating whether the neighbors cared less about Shannon because she was a sex worker. If schoolteacher Jane Doe had been knocking on doors frantic for help and disappeared, would it have gone differently? Is this what unsolved American mystery in the title? Is that what it really refers to? Hmm. On December 11th, 2010, Blue alerted. The seven-year-old German shepherd had trained with his partner, Officer John Malia, since he was a puppy. Then, a 31-year veteran of the Southwell County Police, 59-year-old Officer Malia was aware that Shannon was missing. That summer of 2010, Malia and Blue had begun scouring the coastline beach searching for her. By December, they've covered the southern area fully, crossed Ocean Parkway, and headed northward. On that cold day, Blue's tail wagged, and he buried his snout, signaling Malia. Leaning in to see what Blue discovered, John Malia saw burlap and a skeleton. They found four of them, skeletons shrouded with burlap, buried at approximately one-tenth of a mile intervals along Gilgo Beach, not far off Ocean Parkway. One had to be the missing Shannon Gilbert, the police thought, waiting for confirmation as the media descended. Questions rose from the press scrutiny. Why hadn't the neighbors helped a girl screaming in the night phoning 911? Why hadn't the police cared enough to get a copy of the security video, which remained for a month before it was copied over? Why hadn't the Oak Island Beach Association stopped the video from being wiped clean? There were no answers. Mary declared that Shannon had cried, You're trying to kill me, in the 911 call. Her daughter was trying to get away from someone. Suffolk Deputy Inspector Gerald McCarthy confirmed that Shannon does say she's being threatened, but he also goes on to state that Shannon was, quote, drifting in and out intoxicated, end quote, and there's nothing to indicate that she was actually, in fact, a crime victim. Mary and Cherie were appalled, just as I am. Good grief, she's drunk, so she's not a victim? Even though she calls 911, screams, runs away? I mean, what did she have to do to be considered a victim that night? Bleed to death on the highway? All right, so December 14th, 2010, the name Megan Waterman emerges, with her mother Lorraine appearing on TV with Nancy Grace. Police Commissioner Richard Dormer spoke, downplaying the serial killer talk. I don't want anyone to think that we have a Jack the Ripper running around Sulphur County with blood dripping from a knife. And with that, 10 miles of Ocean Parkway were shut down as an intensive search by multiple police agencies began in the light snowfall. Meanwhile, back at the lab, a celebrated forensic anthropologist, Bradley Adams, began to analyze the four bodies. None of the jaws had a titanium plate, so Shannon was still missing, and Mary Gilbert just sagged. Stymied by the winter weather, the search of Gilgo was postponed until spring 2011. Commissioner Dormer created a task force to investigate the deaths, 
which sought advice from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit from Quantico. By the end of January 2011, the victims had been identified. Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amberlyn Costello. They were all roughly the same age, all escorts, all came from other towns to live nearby to work. They were also daughters, sisters, and nieces. Suffolk County District Attorney Thomas Spoda formally acknowledged that they were looking for a serial killer. Sarah Carnes' phone rang. She had been barely gone an hour, and Maureen was already calling her. It was 12.27 p.m., and Sarah needed sleep, and she didn't answer. Back in Connecticut that night, Al, a big Italian guy she knew, called Sarah. Al told Sarah that Maureen had been robbed of $5,000. Sarah said that that was impossible. Maureen didn't have that much cash. So Sarah called Maureen and got voicemail. After Al, Maureen called her sister, Missy, at the home she shared with her husband, Chris Kahn, and their three children. Keeping it light, she asked, Hey, could Chris pick her up? It was late. He had to work early tomorrow, was the response. No problem. Maureen said she'd take a train. Calls to Maureen went unanswered on Tuesday, Wednesday, and by Thursday, Missy and her brother Will called the Norwich PD to report her missing. When they learned she was an escort in financial trouble, the police stopped taking them seriously. Frantic, Missy knew Maureen would never be out of touch with her children, Caitlin and Aiden, for this long. Missy backtracked to the hotel Maureen was staying at. No one had any memory of her, but she had checked out on Tuesday, the day that she was due back in court, a court date where Maureen was a no-show. Rushing to her sister's apartment, it was cleared out and her stuff discarded. When she got wind of Maureen's EBT card being used, she discovered it was just some friends of hers. Missy dove into Maureen's email. Nothing. She searched for photos of Maureen on adult sites, searching through tales of unidentified women, accident victims, women with amnesia. She kept calling the police. Missy learned Maureen's cell phone had pinged near Fire Island, Long Island. Weird. Maureen, she never did calls on Long Island. Then, the unthinkable happened. Her brother Will, the youngest of the three, was killed in a motorcycle accident. As horrible and awful as this was, Missy expected it would push Maureen to show up at the funeral. And when she didn't, Missy had a horrible realization. Her sister was not coming back. Amanda's phone rang, eight times in total. The first time, Amanda was flooded with relief. It was the missing Melissa calling finally. But the deep male voice definitely wasn't her. He called Amanda a half-breed. This guy knew Amanda's father was black. He seemed to know too much. Their lawyer, Steve Cohen, notified the police, who now took Melissa's disappearance seriously. Beginning with call number three, the police traced it to a cell tower in Times Square, Madison Square Garden area. But with this dense population, it rendered him invisible. The psychopath would only talk to 15-year-old Amanda, who was encouraged to keep him talking, draw him out. The anxiety had to be terrible as he played cat to Amanda's mouse, asking her, 
Are you going to be a whore like your sister? Controlled, he enjoyed playing this game. He knew exactly what he was doing, hinting he knew where Amanda lived, that he'd come after her. In the final call on August 26, 2009, he said, I'm watching your sister's body rot. Amanda broke down, revealing Melissa's secret to the family. She told him about the sex work ads, Melissa on the phone making dates, that she had a car service driving her to and fro. Amanda would suffer from depression, miss school, and struggle for a long time. For Melissa's mom, Lynn, the second guessing was torment. Melissa was an adult, independent, and stubborn. Lynn wondered, was there something else she could have done to get Melissa to come home? And she and boyfriend Jeff threw themselves into his new diner, JJ Texas Hots. Work provided solace for everyone. Lynn's sister, Dawn, she worked shifts after her day job. Their dad, Elmer, he washed dishes. Mom, Linda, washed the floors. But not long after, Linda passed away, leaving everyone convinced that Melissa's death had just broken her heart. And then in December 2010, the news of bodies being found on Long Island Beach, all presumed to be sex workers, broke. And Lynn's worst fears were confirmed six weeks later. Melissa had been the first of the bodies discovered by Blue and Officer Malia. Lorraine Waterman ran it over and over again in her mind, her mantra. My children, Megan and Greg, were stolen from me by my mother Muriel, and no one understands me. After Megan had been identified, she had Megan R.I.P. tattooed on her left arm. So over 10 years, Lorraine was working to get her medical assistance degree in Portland, Maine, a town rejuvenated by the new healthcare infrastructure that had taken root. She lived in a modest home with her boyfriend, Bill, his daughter, and grandson. Megan's daughter, Lily, lived with Muriel, who had rescued Megan and Greg from Lorraine as the family lore went. Now that Megan had been murdered, Lorraine blamed Muriel's overprotective nurturing. The bickering and fighting over old history was endless. When Megan went missing, in spite of it all, the family united to hold a search-oriented vigil. Volunteers arrived, flyers were put up, and the word went out. When Lorraine appeared on CNN discussing Megan's abbreviated life story, she appeared to throw Megan under the bus for not listening to the warnings family members had given her about the dangers of Craigslist and sex work. The family unified again, promising to prevent Megan as the victim, and that Kareen Cruz, a.k.a. Vibe, had taken advantage of Megan, abused her, and addicted her to the money that she could make. However, more division and fighting occurred over Lily's custody. When a call came from the Suffolk County PD that DNA was needed, no two family members were speaking. At Megan's funeral, Amanda and Greg eulogized her together, saying, quote, Megan had the best heart of just about anybody I've ever met in my life. There isn't a thing that girl wouldn't do for anybody. End quote. It was as if both Amber and her older sister Kim had both disappeared. Changing her location and cell phone numbers frequently, Kim claimed that I'm not off the grid, I'm just hard to track. Visiting her dad in a Wilmington, North Carolina nursing home, a friend called Kim about the bodies discovered on Gilgo Beach. 
Bracing herself, Kim knew that an ID was coming, and she called Suffolk County PD herself about sending in a DNA sample. In January, Kim went north to attend Amber's funeral in Lyndhurst. Who arranged the service? Dave Schaller, the nice guy who received money from a local pastor to pay for the funeral. Taking the money and Amber's ashes, Kim promised to have another burial in Wilmington, but that never materialized. And then Kim disappeared again. Dave Schaller went on to rehab after Amber disappeared and was living sober at the time of the funeral service. Good for him. Missy heard the report from Gilgo Beach, and her heart dropped to the floor, knowing that Maureen was one of the four. The cell phone ping from Fire Island made sense now. She sent in her DNA, and the wait began. Prowling Facebook and the web, she came across Megan Waterman's story, and then her mother, Lorraine. Soon, Missy and Lorraine were speaking on the phone, confiding about the pain that just wouldn't go away, and being strong to get through this, this terrible loss. Soon the family circuit widened to include Mary and Sherry, Dawn, Melissa's aunt, and Kim. Memorial Facebook pages were begun, some taking to writing down their thoughts. They took to trying to find a connection that might help investigators. Most of all, they supported each other through the grief and the hope that the case would be solved. Then the police found more victims along that closed 10-mile stretch. Police flocked in from multiple agencies, state police, state park police, Nassau County PD, busloads of police recruits. Five fire trucks with long ladders extended out overlooked the dense brush from the manned buckets. Others were diving gear searching underwater all along Oak Beach to Hemlock Bay. On April 4th, 2011, they found three more bodies. These were found deep in the underbrush and were not wrapped in burlap as they had been there for a far longer period. Two would be tied to torsos previously found in Manorville, New York. One was later identified as Jessica Taylor, who we'll be discussing in our next episode. Another body was a man, petite and Asian, who was likely wearing women's clothing. Another was the body of a toddler wrapped in a blanket. Extracting DNA was complicated as body parts had been strewn about making it necessary to take multiple samples. And the news crews returned with gusto, causing consternation among the Oak Beach residents once again. The rumor mill kicked into high gear. No theory went unaired. He knows the area like the back of his hand. He's a local clamor with lots of access to Burlock. He's a cop, a retired cop, or a disgraced cop. He's a husband, as two different women claimed. NYPD were being interviewed as suspects. Vibe's laptop was seized. Amber was ripping off Johns, who sought revenge. One reporter found Blaze, who said that he had received threatening phone calls from a white guy, who said, quote, You like to do some crazy stuff with Melissa. I know where you be at. End quote. The number was traced to a disposable phone registered to Mickey Mouse. Hmm. Mary Gilbert quaked every time the phone rang. Asked not to speak to the press, Mary talked her head off. She claimed that her persistence was the only reason the police kept searching for Shannon. Quote, if it wasn't for my daughter, these bodies would never have been found, 
everyone has their destiny and maybe this was hers, end quote. Like Lorraine, Mary was working through recasting her relationship with Shannon and Kim was doing the same thing with hers and Amber's. Kim drove to Oak Beach, needing to see the places mentioned on the news coverage. She arrived the day the police were ferrying photographers on a bus. Kim boarded the bus, was recognized and welcomed. But to Kim, it all seemed staged, as the real investigation was going on specifically where they were not allowed. So when the police learned that Kim was on the bus, they were angry. A video of Kim leaving the scene in tears was played and replayed on the news that evening, creating more dissension and angst. April 11th. About a mile from Jones Beach, human bones in a plastic bag were found, and the body count rose to 10. Later, a cadaver dog found a human skull in a wildlife sanctuary. In time, those bodies would be linked to other unsolved cases, dating back to 1996 to 2000 in Manorville, New York. The signatures of these new discoveries did not match that of the four burlap victims. These had been dismembered and scattered. Was this evidence of two dump sites from two very different serial killers? An utterly terrifying thought. Chief of Detectives Dominic Verone sought to ease tensions, saying that it was a consolidation that the killer didn't appear to be, quote, selecting citizens at large. He's selecting from a pool. The escorts using Craigslist are very available. They're vulnerable, and they're willing to get in the car with a stranger, end quote. Of this, Kolker writes, quote, The chief's message was clear. If they'd been successful and well-educated, like the Son of Sam's victims, all of Long Island might be in a panic. But these were prostitutes. Of course they'd been killed. End quote. No need for anyone else to panic or be concerned. So let, let's be clear. This is wrong. There is no pecking order of expendable victims or ones that are more acceptable to us as murder victims than others. Someone being murdered is not all right, and anyone being blasé about a victim because of their socioeconomic status shows a bias that is of the worst order. We reject that, and we believe law enforcement works for us all, for all victims equally. A missing person must be investigated, period. Certainly, the murdered person's case must be investigated. Who the victim is should have no bearing on police procedure or investigation. At one point, a media person was overheard marking, wow, they're doing all this for a bunch of prostitutes? All right, so society, you need to catch up too and adjust to this expectation. No hierarchy of victimhood. No one is expendable. Wow. On the anniversary of Shannon's disappearance, Powerhouse Mary invaded Oak Beach. Going beyond the gate, Mary and daughters, Cherie and Sarah, plus her Facebook entourage, knocked on doors, looked in windows, and created a huge stir for about two hours, with the media watching. When an appalled resident threatened to call 911, Mary retorted, It'll take 45 minutes for him to get here emitting strained laughs. Oof. They knocked on Peter Hackett's home, looking for a fight, but they didn't get it. Instead, they held hands and prayed, 
May she come home alive and safe. Conspiracies is the topic of the next section of Colker's story, and for good reason. Just about every family member, resident of New York, web detective, had a pet theory on who the Long Island serial killer was, probably more, and it included the residents of Oak Beach. Joe Scalise and his son, Joe Jr., really disliked the faction of the community that had sided against them, like Gus Coletti and his ilk, which includes Dr. Peter Hackett and his wife. Joe Jr. wasn't shy about sharing his theory about Hackett, calling him a psychopath. Scalise's conspiracy went like this. When Joe Brewer and Shannon briefly left their house during their date, Joe Jr. believed they went to get drugs, like almost everyone else, to be fair. Only the Joes theorized that they went to get drugs at Peter Hackett's house. Now, the doctor is known for treating neighbors if needed, and he would be certainly a good source for prescriptions. With Dr. Hackett long retired, disabled, perhaps money was an issue. I myself wondered where they had gone to get drugs, with Oak Beach being so far away from civilization. So it does seem plausible that someone in Oak Beach was supplying them with drugs. So, Joe Jr. had also been hearing rumors that Shannon had pounded on Barbara Brennan's door seeking help. Only in Scalise's theory, instead of calling the cops, Barbara called her neighbor, Tom Canning. Canning was another Oak Beach Association crony, and rumors indicated that he called Hackett, who was listed in the Oak Beach directory as the medical director of the on-site community defibrillator. Now, that doesn't make him a serial killer. And what does Tom Canning have to do with Shannon's disappearance? Well, it is interconnected. A few days after the four bodies were found, Justin Canning was quoted in the post saying, Yeah, she was in a panic and we thought she was on drugs. So the we puts Justin and the Cannings on site when this all went down. So according to the Scalises, Shannon was one of many party girls who met a deadly fate. But in Shannon's case, the party had gone banned for the hosts, one of them being allegedly Hackett himself. Shannon brought a driver and escaped the house in a panic, was seen running about screaming by others, and called 911. To prove their theory, the men took Coker on a tour, pointing out Hackett's house, which abutted an enormous marsh, and was very close to Barbara Brennan's place. Father and son thought Shannon was somewhere in that marsh. The Joes based this belief on Hackett's reaction on learning of a reclamation project. The marsh was going to be drained to reduce mosquito infestation, and ironically, this project was being run by Joe Sr.'s daughter. Hackett was overly curious as to when and where they'd be digging, which was a red flag to the men. And a few weeks later, boom, the burlap bodies are found. Coincidence? They said no. Their story is that Hackett deliberately erased the security tape and was covering up his actions ever since. They drove Coker over to the community center where the association held their meetings. Alongside it is a driveway with direct access to Ocean Parkway, which is secured with a chain and with a lock across it. Now, driving this route, one could avoid the security cameras and easily dump bodies where they were found. Only a few people have keys that open that chain's lock, and one of them is Dr. Peter Hackett. 
interesting, but is there any evidence that Peter Hackett had actually seen Shannon that night? Mary Gilbert claims he has, but no, there remains actually no hard corroborating evidence that this ever happened. And Coker assures us, reporters were all over this, trying to dig this out of the dirt, and if it existed, they would have found it. And nothing was found. Web Sleuths, a long-established internet chat venue that investigates cold case murders, began poring over the media reports as this gossip mill turned. Everything from analyzing Hackett's body language to tracking down his entire employment record to see if it coordinated with any of the other remains that had been discovered on Long Island that could possibly be related, and the discussions and the debates went deep. By the way, Hackett's work as director of EMT did put him in proximity to the area where Jessica Taylor's remains were discovered. So a web sleuth named Brandon Murphy theorized, just as the Scalises had, that Dr. Hackett was the source of the drugs that night. He theorizes that perhaps Hackett asked Brewer if he could borrow Shannon for a few hours. Now, would this have been enough to frighten a drugged Shannon, convincing her that Michael Pack was also in on this? Would it cause her to call 911, fearful of trusting anyone? When Hackett finally admitted to calling Mary just after Shannon's disappearance, Web Sleuth kicked into high gear. For Mary, Peter Hackett lied. How could you now believe him when he claimed he had nothing to do with Shannon's disappearance? That he had never seen her. That she never went to his house that he never offered assistance. On asking Hackett himself, Mary would be frustrated into tears. Critzia's life changed right before Melissa vanished. She discovered she was pregnant by her pimp, Mel, which pushed her to reconnect with her parents back in New Jersey, who eventually meet their grandson, Jameer. For a while, Mel lived with them as a family, but soon Critzia realized that he didn't really want any of this. He wanted to be free, on the streets, and not a dad. Treated for depression, Kritzia got assistance, but nearly lost custody of her son to the state. None of this was easy. In July 2011, it was Blaze who told Kritzia that Melissa was dead, a victim of the serial killer. Devastated, she refused to believe it until a Google search revealed the awful truth. Joining the Facebook memorial groups, Kritzia connected with Lynn and Amanda, who had no idea that Kretzia even existed. She was able to fill in the many gaps in Melissa's story for them, and they grieved together. Kretzia's heart just shattered by the idea of some man out there hunting them. Escorts, girls, just like her. She friended Missy, Lorraine, and Cherie, too. Unlike Kim, who continued to be an escort, Kritzia deeply regretted the life. She told Kulker, quote, there are so many other girls that are out there working right now, and they don't know. I want girls to get scared and stop working, which I know is not going to happen, but some girls get scared. I got scared, end quote. And Kritzia became an honorary family member, representing Melissa's memory on memorial pages online. Kulker also got to speak with Blaze, who denied being a pimp. He complained about playing child support for his three kids. Through text, Blaze told Coker what he loved about Melissa. Quote, the way she'd go hard for me. The love that she had for me. 
the way she was there for me, no matter what people said, end quote. Gee, what did people say, Blaze? That you were an abusive pimp selling her out? A weak using loser of a man who made it on her back? Hmm? Hmm? When Coker asked him about the attack on Melissa, Critzia said he ordered. Blaze exploded. I took care of her the whole time she was out there. If I'm guilty of fussing and fighting with my girlfriend, yeah, I'm guilty of that. But hurting her? No, no, not at all. I've been through some stuff because of her. End quote. Oh my God, he's been through stuff, huh? Not owning a damn thing, Blaze. Take responsibility for your actions and consequences. Pimping out your girlfriend is abuse. Striking her is abuse. You're an abusive, victim-blaming piece of crap. Oh, and pay for your kids, too. (sighs) Useless. Well, Sarah Carnes didn't stop working when Maureen disappeared. She was back at the Super 8 in New York City after Connecticut proved to be a bust. It was her second arrest that was her wake-up call, when she finally decided that she couldn't work in the sex trade anymore. She explains, quote, I'd rather be broke and with my daughter than what happened to Maureen, end quote. Living in a nonprofit for families when Robert Coker interviewed her, Sarah was caring for her 14-month-old daughter, Bella. Sarah said the night before, Missy had sent her a video showing a skeleton being discovered on Long Island. Missy knew it was Maureen when she spied the broad shoulders. Sarah just lost it, posting to Maureen's Facebook her lamentation that she hadn't stayed, that a fucking wacko is out there playing God when he's really a devil. And I personally don't think that our justice system has severe enough punishment for this creep. She promised herself to focus on how Maureen lived and not how she died and willed herself to hold on to her favorite memory of Maureen with hair done up, makeup perfect, strutting their stuff in Times Square like beauty queens. Father of four, Greg Waterman was working in construction for seven years when he got laid off when the economy crashed in 2008. Complicating his job hunt was a previous arrest for theft, and the situation fed Greg's anger at what happened to Megan. Greg Waterman missed his sister and was hopelessly bound up in his family's dysfunction. Lorraine's meaty interviews drove him crazy, as she'd never been a true mother to either him or Megan. When Greg attended a vigil with Lorraine, She'd been far too concerned with impressing the other family members by showing a lot less concern for her own. Afterward, while Lorraine had lauded a new family, she never bothered to call Greg or inquire about her own grandkids. Lorraine's sister, Liz, was given custody of Megan's daughter, Lily, and doesn't invite Lorraine to family functions. Lorraine claims that Liz played no role in Megan's life, and she couldn't stand Megan which feeds conflicts and disagreements. Greg and Muriel claim to have tried to keep in touch with Lorraine, who just stopped responding to texts and phone calls. Muriel stated, quote, It breaks my heart, Lorraine turning her back on this baby, end quote. Greg agrees with Muriel and Aunt Liz. Personally, I think they'd all benefit greatly from grief counseling because they're all in pain and cannot seem to let go of the past and what they cannot change. Just my two cents. Update on Dave Schaller. He'd spoken about Amber on the record to 48 hours, 
but only after the police had warned him to be cautious. The killer might be someone he'd thrown out of the house, and there was no way that Dave could know for sure. And they had a point. Dave remarked, quote, If the killer was so adamant about picking her up near my house, he probably somebody that I saw. I worry about it sometimes. What if I'm a loose end? End quote. But still, Dave's moved on, and he managed to hold on to his sobriety by attending 12-step program meetings regularly, even though he really hates them. But one thing he's definitely left behind was Kim. Definitely over her. Now, Kim continues to work as an escort. Her ads on Backpage were quite revealing, while the real-life version looked a little bit haggard. The alliance that she formed with the family members was definitely a thing of the past. As Kim became more unavailable, she was blamed more and more for what happened to Amber. A Florida friend of Amber's believes that Amber's big mistake was going to New York with Kim in the first place, and that she took advantage of her little sister from the get-go. While Kim continued to ignore Missy and Lorraine's messages, she did respond to Robert Colker's wanting to tell him Amber's story. Meeting for lunch, he asked her about her kids. Kim explained that they were still living with their father's parents and that she comes around. She'd be visiting her daughter very shortly. Of course, the grandparents don't approve of her escorting or doing drugs, and if the topic arises, they're always eager to help solve it because they don't want the kids exposed to Kim's issues. In denial, Kim recalls that she and Amber weren't nearly as wild as some, Say for that time that they were stabbed and Amber was jumped by a gang. Kim stresses that in their relationship, any time she talked about Amber, it was always to her face, never behind her back. Amber, however, did totally sell Kim out, which pissed her off. Both were dealing with addiction as they worked as escorts from Hilton Head to California, from New Orleans to New York. Kim insisted that they each chose their paths and has no regrets. Life requires both book sense and common sense, and Kim has some of both, which enabled her to survive. Kim paid for their lunch, and Colker didn't ask where the money came from. But he did find Kim's ad posted in North Carolina on dates that conflicted with Kim's supposed upcoming visit with her daughter. How sad. Missy found Kim's ads on the Internet, where she spent an exhausting amount of time researching. She flipped through instant messages, answered emails, and probed conspiracy theories. Missy and many of the family members were worried about Kim, wanting to understand how she could continue to do this. Quote, I pray every night for her safety. It bothers me to no end to know what she's putting herself into. If I knew now what I did not know before Maureen went missing, I would have done everything in my power to stop her and help her out. End quote. Colker believes that to Missy, Kim had become a surrogate Maureen. And yet there's some denial in Missy's statements, too. She knew Maureen was an escort, and she knew what it entailed. But altering history a bit to adjust to the weight of its burdens is not uncommon by anybody in the story. A&E began shooting a documentary on the Long Island serial killer and learned that Kim was back to escorting. On camera, Kim claimed that she was trying to lure and trap the Long Island serial killer herself. Quote, because it'll intrigue him. That's what I'm hoping I'll do, catch his eye, end quote. 
Dave Schaller was incensed. What the hell does she think is going to happen? She's going to be sitting there having sex with somebody and she's going to be able to stop this guy from strangling her? End quote. He wasn't the only familiar person to comment during the program. Mary makes some vague accusations. Lorraine criticizes the Solvok Police Department. Lynn attacks Craigslist. Missy explains how Maureen needed money so desperately. Alex Diaz frames the story of his punching Shannon in the jaw. The big news, however, was Commissioner Dormer announcing the new theory that there is just one killer. The documentary is worth a watch even today. Oh dear, so we have the District Attorney Spoda at odds with the Commissioner Richard Dormer on two or more killers versus the one killer theory, which always makes for a smooth investigation. Right, murder bookies, don't you think? All right, so the major players here in law enforcement are on different pages. What convinced Dormer that it was the work of one guy? All right, he says linkage of those along Ocean Parkway to the earlier discoveries. So Jessica Taylor's body parts being along the parkway and in Manorville, plus other dismembered Jane Doe's found in 1996 and then another in 2000. Now, Baby Doe was linked via DNA to another Jane Doe dumped seven miles west from where the toddler was found. So his theory is one guy, likely a Long Islander, been using this as his dumping ground for a long time, refining his techniques as a serial killer, as they are given to doing, by trial and error. Now, Dormer believed that he had begun with dismemberment, leaving the parts in separate locations. By the time he gets to Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber, he had held on to them, bagged them with burlap. The Asian man was likely a transgendered sex worker, and the toddler accompanied the mother on this unfortunate call, which sadly isn't something that's terribly uncommon. That there are still Jane Doe's speaks to how far off the grid these women were living as sex workers. The final four victims were so similar, demonstrates that the killer started using the internet, Craigslist, Backpage to lure and vet his victims. Now, the exception to this theory was Shannon Gilbert. She didn't work alone. She had a driver for security. To Dormer, Shannon's disappearing in that area is a coincidence. And since her body hasn't been found, she might not even be a victim. Okay, so family members are baffled and angry by his statements. After months of silence on the case, the casual mention that Shannon may not be connected to the case at all just seemed really crass and irresponsible. And Dormer's statement came mere weeks before his retirement, so it kind of made him look like he was just trying to tie things up. Kim was angry, unraveling, and going off on Facebook, saying that cops just don't know shit or they have an arrest. And the one-killer theory made no sense to her. Bodies in burlap versus dismembered bodies? Just no way. After speaking out on TV, Kim felt vulnerable and exposed, because if the killer or killers didn't know who she was before, they sure did now. Kim continued to spiral and wound up checking herself into Talbot House, a rehab in Bohemia, Long Island. Bear, Amber's old boyfriend, was living in Manhattan, mostly homeless after being kicked out of a court-appointed rehab. 
He had lost touch with Dave and Kim, though he still felt a great affection for his one-time family. I'm not saying Kim's a bad person because she's not. Even if Amber was strung out, she'd still give you the shirt off her back. Kim, Kim was very different. Where Amber cared about others, Kim cares about Kim, said Bear. He explained Kim's manipulation of Amber, how she'd ignored her little sister and lied to her. Bear's regrets were many, and he acknowledged that he failed Amber, too. He said he hadn't called the police, but you may remember he was in rehab when Amber went missing. In his 27 years, he'd been to rehab for alcohol, crack, Xanax, cocaine, weed, and dope. And he was, quote, no longer opiate dependent, end quote, meaning that he was down to one bag of heroin a day and only sniffing it. He occasionally blows by rehab every so often and then comes up with all kinds of reasons why he doesn't do it. So that was Bear. So around the first anniversary of the discovery of the bodies, the police announced that Shannon Gilbert's body might actually be at Gilgo Beach after all. Aunt Mary and the others were barely moved, but they did hope that this came from new information. And it did not. This actually came from information that they had been sitting on for months from an aerial photography done by the FBI the previous spring. They had waited until the brush thinned out again in the winter. Now, wouldn't it be better for a cop to get poison ivy than let the serial killer run around longer? Just saying, uh, you know. But it wasn't exactly confidence-inspiring. And again, the media surged and the residents bristled. Now, rumor had it that the Hackett's were trying to relocate to Florida. Not that I blame them one bit. Colker did get to speak to Peter Hackett, and he gave him a tour of his home, and Peter pointed to the storage room and identified it tongue-in-cheek as his rehab clinic, where he clearly could not have treated Shannon. He insisted that no one called him that night to treat a panicked Shannon. In fact, he chided Gus Coletti and Barbara Brennan that they should have called him and that he might have been able to help the girl. Um, hmm. But that still doesn't explain why Hackett denied that he called Mary in the first place. That remains sketchy and it traps him in his lies. Colker draws a parallel. Quote, I can't help but think of Richard Jewell, who discovered the pipe bomb at the Atlanta Olympics only to be fingered for a long time as the bomber. He was not. And you should see Richard Jewell, the movie, if you haven't. Is Hackett the Richard Jewell of the Long Island serial killer case? Or is he the Joel Rifkin? End quote. That's a great question, and I do not know the answer to it. When he was asked about the security video, Hackett sighed. The police did want it, and they were given it. And since he was on the board, of course he gave it to him. Well, had he looked at it beforehand? Well, of course, early we said that we should be looking at the security video. But that would be tampering with evidence. Well, wait. Hackett looked at the security video, but when? Right after Shannon went missing? Or months later when the police were walking around asking for it? After it had been copied over? In between? Like, when he looking at it? Colker and Hackett, they agreed to keep in touch, and they parted amicably. And 24 hours later, Shannon's belongings are found in the marsh 
right behind Peter Hackett's house. Hmm. Now, a player in this investigation is the marsh itself. It is 49 acres of wet bramble, cord grass, reeds, poison ivy, and mud. And with every storm, it fills up with precipitation like a bathtub. Now, improved drainage ditches have helped lower that tide, so it was more accessible to being searched. On finding Shannon's purse and ID just steps away from Ocean Parkway, they next found her phone, shoes, and a torn pair of jeans. Commissioner Dorner told the media that, quote, she's in there someplace and hopefully we will find the remains, end quote. And then he went on theorizing. Shannon was high that night, paranoid, and ran into the marsh, probably seeing the lights from cars on Ocean Parkway and beyond, which she didn't realize was a quarter of a mile away. And in the dense, murky marsh drew her in, exhausted her, and she likely drowned. The chief of detectives, Dominic Verone, also explained that there was a small path in the marsh, and that was likely where Shannon entered, and her things were not found too far from that path. Well, that's some insight, Commissioner. And her body hadn't been found, hadn't been an autopsy or anything yet. And it was just the irony that a theoretical drowning case had exposed a serial killing of 10 victims. Mary went on to confirm that the pocketbook and the phone were Shannon's and then shut the door, pulled the curtains, and just braced herself. And then on December 11th, an almost fully intact skeleton with a titanium plate in the jaw was found in the marsh about a quarter of a mile from Shannon's belongings. Just as Joey and Joe Scalise had theorized, Shannon Gilbert had been found in the marsh. She was close to the southern edge of the parkway, putting her actually in close proximity to the other victims. So it was possible that Shannon had been dumped off the side of the road like the others. But Dormer was absolute in his theory that she died of exposure or drowning after collapsing in the marsh. The reason she was so far from her things was cocaine psychosis, and she was discarding her positions as she went along, he explained, because, quote, you know, she's uh, hysterical and discarding her possessions as she moves. Her genes could have come off from running in that environment, end quote. So she ran out of her genes. Huh? I've never had that happen. Hmm. It was a good thing that Commissioner Dormer was retiring, but not before politics got into the thick of it. Attorney General Spoda hated the way Dormer and his boss, Steve Levy, had gutted the police budget which had spawned investigations into campaign spending improprieties that forced Levy not to seek another term. Remember, Spoda and Dormer were not on the same page regarding the investigation, Dormer thinking one killer, Spoda embracing a more-than-one-killer theory. Incoming interim commissioner Ed Weber, he stuck to a middle path, insisting that all theories were open, no theories were fixed at the moment, and these political problems would plague the department for years to come. So stay tuned for second cast. Mary. With her worst fears confirmed, she hit the roof over statements issued on Shannon's death. Would a crazy person call 911? 
That's not a psychotic break. That's abject terror. So she was crazy enough to take off her jeans in the marsh, but coherent enough to be on the phone with 9-11 for 23 minutes. Hmm. Shouldn't they wait for an autopsy to be performed before discussing how Shannon died? Yes, you think. Uh, Was it a coincidence that Shannon's body was found the same day that the rest of the families were convening at Oak Beach for the first anniversary vigil, where the families were posting crosses? And the vigil was when everyone else found out that Shannon had been found. Missy, Lorraine, Kritzia, even Kim showed up, while not quite playing nice with others. Gus Coletti came by. Peter Hackett actually came by, if you can believe it. Finally, Mary arrived to painful, long hugs held between this special group of people who had lost their sisters and daughters. Mary was truly one of them now. She said, Today marks the one-year anniversary, and I want to be here to support the families and be with them. And as much as today may be Shannon's, it's not just Shannon's. It's all of us. Every one of us and our families and friends and everyone that was affected by this. End quote. They all hugged as Mary trailed off. It's just too hard. Lorraine spoke and said, I almost 100% guarantee that this man is sitting in his home right now, watching what's going on on TV and getting the biggest thrill of his life, seeing what he's done to these families. End quote. Later, we would find out that the Gilbert family attorney, John Ray, went to Oak Beach to do a reenactment. Beginning at 5 a.m., they retraced Shannon's steps into the marsh under similar circumstances, the same day, the same time of year, as it had been on that fateful night. A woman, approximately Shannon's size and weight, entered the marsh to see if her movements were stymied by the thick undergrowth and to determine what she could and couldn't see. And guess what? Based on the simulation results, the police supposition about how Shannon had proceeded through the marsh that night were totally incorrect. First, Ray's shoes barely got wet. Second, it was easy to see past the reeds to the house and the highway. Ray left more skeptical than ever that Shannon had gotten lost, drowned, or died of exposure. Kolker points out that the police explanation that Shannon was hysterical not only didn't make sense, but it was positively Victorian. Murder bookies, do you recall when we discussed how women were viewed in 1896 at the time of Lizzie Borden in episode 5? They were looked at as immature, unable to be responsible for themselves, overcome by their emotions, given to, quote, hysteria? So here we have Shannon and the same uneducated Victorian view of prostitution. And as Coker states so effectively, the police seemed to be saying that Shannon Gilbert had died because her soul had been rendered asunder by life on the streets. How had Shannon died? Granted, there's no definitive cause, but after Ray's reenactment, I don't buy her drowning in the marsh after running out of her jeans. So Kolker now begins an important section on Mary just imploding with grief and anger, taking irrational and unpopular actions that offend her daughters as well as the other families, even after their touching show of support and mutual caring. He also interviews Joe Brewer, which I thought would be more enlightening. 
Brewer's a clown and a pompous ass who doesn't take the death of a young woman seriously, let alone the deaths of ten or more. And I can't possibly go into all of the details, and I encourage you to read this important book. Lost Girls is a necessary read for anybody who loves true crime. Two more bodies were found, one February 17th, the other March 21st, 2012, both in Manorville, New York. Both sets of skeletized remains were left in remote, dense brush, perfect body dumps. Detective Lieutenant Jack Fitzpatrick promised a fresh look at the case, a new perspective, saying that he believed, quote, it's very unlikely that it's one person, end quote. Mary, perhaps a little humbled after her meltdown, pledged confidence in Fitzpatrick. It didn't last long. When Mary hired John Ray to represent Shannon, she also hired him to represent all the other young women who had been murdered and held a press conference, all without consulting the other family members, creating a shitstorm. No one asked Mary to represent Maureen. (laughs) Missy was further shocked at Mary alienating the police, who surely knew more about the investigation than they did. Hadn't Shannon's case actually had more resources put into motion than any of the other victims? Hadn't Mary received Shannon's belongings back? No one else had. Wasn't Shannon's case different from the others? Isn't it possible she actually died accidentally and hadn't been murdered? Wouldn't you at least wait until the autopsy was done before speaking to the press? Hadn't Mary actually criticized Dormer for that? Well, eventually the family split into two groups. Missy and Lorraine in one, Mary and her Facebook followers in another. And it was firmly illustrated symbolically when Lorraine sported her new tattoo, an M, 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 and A, without an S. She said when Shannon's death was proved a murder, she'd add an S. Not until. May 1st, 2012. The Gilberts and John Ray met with the Suffolk County Medical Examiner, Yvonne Maluski and Hajar Sims' child, who had actually performed the autopsy on Shannon. Spoiler, it didn't go well. The cause of death remained a question mark. While most of Shannon's skeleton was found, two of the three next hyoid bones were missing. And these bones are critically important in determining strangulation deaths. Sim's child could not say conclusively if Shannon had been strangled like the other victims. Another huge question that loomed over Shannon's case was her behavior that night. Was it drug-induced? To answer this, bone marrow was needed, which could shed light on her use of weed, meth, psychotropics, just about everything except alcohol. The femur bone that that Sim's child had examined had no bone marrow. And they didn't look elsewhere, not even the pelvis. You know, that large bone with all the bone marrow, that when they do bone marrow biopsies, they take bone marrow from it. Weird, right? Well, instead, Sim's child tested brain tissue and hair for cocaine, and these tests were negative. So while the brain and the hair had been sitting in salt water for 18 months, this was a definitive blow to the theory that Shannon was a crazed, high drug addict suffering from cocaine psychosis that night. Evidence indicated this was not the case, 
but there was no cause of death and use of drugs remained unknown, a double fail. Okay, all right, what about DNA, blood, semen? They have Shannon's clothes, they have her purse, her phone. Oh, the police hadn't gotten around to testing that for anything yet. So Mary has one word to describe this long-awaited meeting on her child's autopsy. Betrayal. Oof. Regarding of his simulation of Shannon's path that night, John Ray asks Sim's child if the fact that Shannon's bones had been bleached by the sun was suggested she had been lying down for a significant length of time. Did that mean she could have been placed in that spot after she was dead? Sim's child couldn't answer yes or no. So I really do sympathize with Mary's frustration here. I, I, I get that. Now, what infuriated Cherie and Mary the most was the way the police's theory blamed Shannon at the exclusive of everyone else. Joe Brewer, the John, he's a free man. Michael Pack, he goes on with his life. Shannon calls for help, and the police failed to provide that help. They failed again when they did not take her disappearance seriously, severely damaging the subsequent investigation. And they failed again by not going after pimps and johns in general. Prostitutes are expendable is the message. They, they just don't deserve help, which is wrong. Okay, totally wrong as we've stressed before. All people are created equal. We believe that. Let's make it so. And happy 4th of July, by the way. So Alex Diaz has had trouble moving on, and he hasn't had a relationship since Shannon. He said, it's always in the back of my head. I want to know what happened to her. It's kind of hard to move on not knowing. He did get a real job working for a valet company. Alex told the Gilberts, quote, if I was using her, you guys were just as guilty. They knew what she was doing, and the mother would take the money, the sister would take the money, end quote. Hmm. Michael Pack was still living in Queens, and he too had gotten gainful employment, but he preferred to stay quiet about where. I understand that too. Peter Hackett evidently sold his cottage and did move to Florida. Before leaving, he continued to deny that he had seen or treated Shannon that night. He defended himself, saying he told Gus and Barbara that he wished Gus would have brought her to him. But that contradicts Gus, who swore he had not talked to Peter Hackett about Shannon. So which is it, guys? Still haven't gotten your story straight? Jeez. But remember, Peter Hackett likes to talk. He likes to talk. He complained that he just didn't want the community to appear to be a bunch of uncaring rich people. So he called Mary, but of course he'd forgotten that he called her at all. Sure. And then on October 29, 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit the region, buckling Ocean Parkway. Oak Beach fared better than many of the inland towns, but the dunes were flattened, houses flooded, power lost for weeks. On November 15, two weeks after Sandy, the Gilberts filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Dr. Peter Hackett that Peter had given Shannon drugs early that morning as part of their doctor-patient relationship and that he had let her leave his home under the influence, which was neglect. At a press conference revealing the lawsuit, John Ray showed the press Mary's phone records, 
proving Peter Hackett had made a five-minute phone call to her on May 3, 2010, two days after Shannon's disappearance, three days prior to what he had admitted to. With little concrete evidence, they wanted him deposed in court, uncover what happened in detail. The suit is still pending. In the spring 2012, a chance meeting occurred when Greg had a benign run-in with a police officer. He looked at Greg's name, eyes widened, asking, Megan Waterman? Greg blinked and just knew, you're Officer Weed. I know all about you. Officer Weed had mentored Megan when she was in high school, and he thought he'd known her well. But Weed had not known about Megan going into escorting, and he'd been surprised when she went missing and was reported murdered. It made him think about the kind of help that you can give a person with such narrow options. A few months after his conversation with Greg, he received a letter. Hi, Officer Reed. It's me, Lily. Here's a picture of me from school. I hope to see you again someday. My mommy lives in heaven. Now she's an angel. Nana says she's proud of me, and she doesn't lie, so I guess she is. I am five years old, and I, I go to J.F. Kennedy School. I am in kindergarten, and I am real smart. Nana says you are real nice, and you knew my mommy. She was nice, too. I hope you like my picture. Nana says I am beautiful, just like my mommy. Love, hugs, and kisses. Liliana R. Waterman. Doug Weed cried. Life was moving forward for Missy. She had been relieved that there was a law in Connecticut which prevented you from cremating a murder victim. It was good. She just felt Maureen had been through enough already. Missy visited her brother Will and sister Maureen's graves, beautifully positioned between two trees and a grassy area. The cemetery held family history. At the other end were Maureen's grandmother and great-grandmother, as well as an uncle. What can be done differently so other sisters wouldn't be in cemeteries? Missy had come to a broader view that even if Craigslist or Backpage were shut down, the sex industry would just go further underground, putting more women in danger. Since these sites were not regulated, they enabled the rapists and killers. Instead, these girls need to be protected. Quote, these girls need to be looked at as human beings. Right or wrong, escorting needs to be brought from the shadows. End quote. This revelation did not make the heartfelt loss any easier to bear. In December 2012, at the second anniversary vigil, Lorraine attended without Missy, who had kind of pulled away. Who showed up? A seven-month pregnant with baby number seven, Kim appeared and the new baby was due on Amber's birthday. Fewer people showed up to remember the Lost Girls at this vigil, but it did not stop them from launching heart-shaped balloons into the sky, remembering Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, and Shannon Gilbert. Not long after, Missy and her kids were in a park and saw a little boy and his dad playing and she recognized Aiden, Maureen's son, who she hadn't seen in five years. Talking to Steve, they all went for ice cream, and she hadn't been that happy in a long time, thinking that God puts you in places for a reason. 
And that concludes part two of Robert Kolker's Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery. Join us next time for second cast Lost Girls Mystery Continues as we examine the death of a major player in this story, the recent developments in the case, the role of DNA and forensic genealogy, the woes of the Suffolk County Police Department who just cannot get out of their own way, and our next book is Trace Evidence, A Hunt for an Elusive Serial Killer by Bruce Henderson. Murder Bookies, I love, 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 love this book, and I hope you will be reading it with us. If not, we are happy to tell you the story and offer some analysis along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podbeep, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts can be heard. We are just all over now. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us and grow the podcast. And we really appreciate your feedback. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Written and produced by Tara and Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hoshana and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy. Cause I love you, hey.